Do you own or rent your home? I'll bet you do, and I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO, our friends, make it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's all wrapped up in one. It's a good thing because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy, folks. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. Now, Podcast One brings you Spike's Car Radio, a downloadable cars and coffee hosted by writer, comedian, and automotive enthusiast, Spike Ferriston. Now, here's Spike. This particular 917, as most people realize, is the car that belonged to Steve McQueen. It was the star of the movie Le Mans. It was purchased new from Porsche by Steve McQueen, Solar Productions, that was his company. After the movie, it was sold to a German racing team called Auto Usdal. They raced this car during the 71 season and a little bit during the 72 season. Then the car went through an interesting phase where it was sold to Richard Atwood, who won Le Mans in 1970 in the Salzburg car. In April of 2001, I talked Jerry into buying it, and uh, he never regretted it. We've played with it at the racetrack a few times. Uh, twice it's been to the Wrenchport reunion, the first time in 04, the last time in 07. So it's been on the track, and I can tell you from personal experience that if you watch the movie, if you watch the opening scenes, when Steve is on Mulsanne, and you hear that roar that is right behind his head, it still does it. The adrenaline that this car causes will make you forget that it's really hot, that you're wearing a fire suit and a helmet and all the paraphernalia because it shuts that switch off in your brain and all you pretend is you're Steve McQueen and I was him yesterday. I, I can't think of anything that I would rather do in my life than driving this car. That was Sam Cabiglio, uh, Pebble Beach, 2009, talking about Jerry Seinfeld's 917, sitting with me Why here in Malibu. Why are you talking so loud? You're talking very loud. It's Jerry Seinfeld, the ever-critical Jerry Seinfeld. Sam Cabiglio, his car. Cabiglio. Cabiglio. Casigliere, and of course, the real Zuckerman. Hello, gentlemen. Go ahead, Jerry. Good morning. <laughs> we have with us a very special guest today on Spike's Car Radio. From the elegant, transcendent, enchanting town of Lecce. My mother. That's where your mother is from. What town? Lake Como. Oh, you're from Lake Como. And you left the at the age of six? Five and a half. <laughs> I hate when people do that. <laughs> That's a yes. Just a yes. Uh, from the age, the age of six, grew up in Italy, came to America, had some awareness of cars in Italy. Oh, total. Yeah. Fiats and... Alphas. Yeah. Lunches. And then came to America, and then soon after was drafted into the Army, went to Vietnam. Right. And but you have car history before that, of course. Oh, a ton of it. Yeah. Well, let's start with... Why don't uh, you tell everybody your relationship? My relationship with Sam is um, when, I, when, when we were doing the show in the 90s, I was starting to get interested in these old Porsches. I had excess funds, which I did not want. And to this day, do not want. <laughs> if I have any money, 
I want to get rid of it. I don't like seeing it around. I don't like cash. I like cash flow. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I started looking in Hemmings. That's what we did in those days. And started trying to decipher the 356 world, which to a beginner is very difficult, very complex. So many cars, so many years, so many models, so many specs, different engines, different coupes and uh, cabs and speedsters and roadsters. And you get overwhelmed very quickly. And I couldn't make head or tail of it. But I, I, I quickly settled onto the Speedster. And I thought, well, here's a car that's really cool looking. I'm sure you can't drive it. I mean, it's 1993, for heaven's sake. You're not going to be able to drive a car from 58, 93 in, in L.A. traffic. I'll get run over. I'll get, uh, you know, I won't be able to manage it. It's a 60-horsepower car. And I found one in Wichita, Kansas. I guess I was just looking for a blue one. I flew to Wichita, Kansas. I met the guy. I Went bought the car and brought it back here and found. And this is really the beginning of my Porsche awakening. I got in this 1958 Speedster. It didn't even run well. And pulled out onto Santa Monica Boulevard and found I was not only as fast as the traffic around me, but faster and having, of course, ten times more fun. And the next thing I knew, I was driving the car every day. I was driving it to the airport to pick friends up and drop them off with luggage. And, and I was hooked. And then I came across another Speedster, and I had, I had told Porsche that I was not comfortable with some of the salesmen at Beverly Hills Porsche. They were a little slick, a little cool, a little... Uh, <laughs> still what, changed. What's the word? What's <laughs> the word? What's the, uh, Oily. Greasy. <laughs> And uh, all I had was an 88, an 11 Carrera at that time. And I said, I, it, I was talking to Bert Olander, who Spike, you also know, was a great Circle. guy, ex-racer. Uh, yeah, he raced. Great Porsche aficionado. I said, do you know anybody that could look at some of these old Porsches for me and tell me if they're in good shape or not? Somebody that does that. He says, you know, I do know a guy who would be very good at that. His name is Sam. And he made the introduction, and I believe you came to my office in Studio City when we yeah. were making the show. That's where we met. Wow. I, di I did. That was after I had gone to look at the car. Oh, so you went and looked at the car, then and I then came you back came. Was a, it was a 58 Speedster, 84113 was the serial number, correct? Very good, yeah. Thank you. This Little is one Rain of the Man. Blue this is one of the Blue Speeds. This is an Emery car. Right. Uh, Don Emery had Don, done it? Gary Emery. He, Gary well, Emery. Well, Gary owned it. Don did a lot of the restoration on it. Uh, and Sam came into my office, and he told me about the car, and he took all these pictures. In those days, in the old Sam days, he'd make a little loose-leaf binder for you <laughs> with pictures, and he would write on a piece of paper and, you know, a three-hole punch <clears> paper, <throat> and he would hand you this book, and that's how you would... Get people interested in cars. Show yeah. them what you thought of it, and here's what it looks like. And, I mean, from there uh, to today is 27 years. Yeah, 26 or so. Are we saying 93 or 94? I think it was 94. 94, yeah, that sounds right. So, basically, we're talking 25 years, and... I've been very fortunate in the entertainment industry, and uh, <laughs> things have... Uh, <laughs> things have... Uh, <clears throat> haven't gone badly. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you did okay. I did okay. But 
the thing that really stabilized me, and this is now we're going to get into one of the, the philosophical yes. world oh. of the car hobby, is you must, with success and accomplishment, you must have madness in your life some <laughs> kind, of some kind. Of some kind. When one thing is out of balance, something else has to be out of balance. Mm-hmm. Any weightlifter can tell you that. You've got to have the same weight on either side of the barbell, right? Yes. So I found the car hobby stabilized me mentally, emotionally, uh, um, intellectually. It kept you out of the cesspit of yes, Hollywood. Yes, I wasn't inclined to anyway. I, I was never interested That's in That's a shame. I, I was a single guy, and I, 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 had, uh, I had associations of, of, of various kinds, of course. But the car hobby, I credit, and Sam, who wherever I would go, whatever, whatever depth I wanted to go into the hobby, he was already there. He had already driven it, already seen it, already knew about it. And so I began to learn. So that is really the beginning of my story with Sam, which, let's, which Sam and I, and a modest gentlemen that we are we don't like to uh ever ever present ourselves in a in a prideful or arrogant way but what we what we have built (laughs) i don't know what the laughing is about about, anyway it's about your face as you said that the knowing look (laughs) the fake hedge um we have over these years built uh quite a group of cars that that someday Someday, people in history will talk of the Jerry Sam car collection that we built over these many years, buying and selling, mostly buying, but selling too. And we've built a pyramid. And our philosophy is we occasionally slice off the bottom of the pyramid and and build the top. Ever ascending. Ever ascending. The Ponzi Porsche pyramid. Well, I don't (laughs) care for that reference. I don't don't like the connotation. Maybe the the wooden, what's his name? Who's the coach? The the, the matchsticks guy? The UCLA coach. Oh, Coach Wooden, the pyramid of success. The pyramid, the The, Porsche pyramid of success success is what you've built. I've never heard Wooden talk about a pyramid. You haven't? No. Everybody knows the wooden pyramid of success. I am disappointed. Is he's the most winningest coach? My kid has a T-shirt of a John Wooden T-shirt. Anyone that he wears. who encountered yes. Wooden, he was changed. He changed hundreds of lives. Yeah, thousands. Bo, Bo Bridges, who played on the UCLA basketball team, was just on talking about how it prepared him not just for basketball but for life. Of course. Well, who can't say that they have done that? But anyway, so that by way of introduction is Sam Cabilio. That's who he is. There's the pyramid. All right. Well, that's not really in the purview of this program. <laughs> <laughs> the pyramid of success. It's been in it twice now. It actually forget is. Forget wooden. Forget fridges. <laughs> but you yeah. guys, look, that was a very long-winded way of saying <laughs> You guys have found some of the greatest. This is my last appearance on this show. <laughs> some of the greatest Porsches ever. No, ever to grace a collection. I mean, you guys find stuff that we lose our minds over. I don't even think the listeners really quite know the depth of rarity and preservation that you find. And Sam, as he was introduced to me in 95 when I was writing for the show, you said this is the guy that vets these cars and makes sure he inspects welds. He's raced. He's been selling them. He's owned some of the cars you own. He's the guy you go to to verify these cars. Yes. And that's been true for me. You've you've, uh, found cars for me. Uh, for Zuckerman, and uh, you know that 
I don't know. We should talk about, I think, some of the things you guys have found. Well, before we get into that, okay. Sam, give us a quick introduction into what got you excited about cars when you were a young boy. It has to be genetic. It has to be uh, a national thing by virtue of being a little boy in Italy and having little toy cars that I would race around on the floor. And one of my favorite stories, because this only underscores the extent to which this is insanity, is I was maybe four years old. We were living at the time in Genova, and my grandmother came up to visit. And so my mother and I go to the market. The market was like a storefront, and when we are going in, I said to my mother, can I stand here by the door because I want to watch the cars going by? <laughs> and, and so she said, okay. And, you know, back in those days, they weren't worried about snatching kids and right. doing that kind of thing. So I'm as happy as could be by the door watching all the cars go by, and I pretty much knew what they all were, and I was four. And it didn't hurt that I had an uncle who had schooled me. So um, my mother is done with the shopping. She goes home, walks into the house, and my grandmother says to her, Dove Sammy? Where's Sam? And my mother goes, ah! <laughs> she runs all the way back to the store. Well, the, the reason she was able to walk out and miss me is there were two entrances. She went out a different one than the one from which she came in. When she got back there, I was still there. This is an hour later. I'm still standing there, still looking at the cars, not missing my mother, you know. So that was an, an early memory of, uh, and then other events uh, of seeing uh, uh, a prototype Alfa Romeo uh, when I was, you know, maybe five or six or something. And then, you know, uh, coming to this country and back then, American cars were huge and they had the annual model change. Right. So I became very interested in seeing how they evolved from year to year. And I had not yet fixated on any particular car. I just liked cars. It didn't matter what they were. Sam, let me ask you this. You're from Italy. Where's the pivot to the German cars? Well, um, <clears throat> I get asked that question all the time. Like, what kind of a trader are you? <laughs> well, <laughs> Red Sox and Yankees. Yeah, yeah exactly. I attribute that to the fact that after my first couple of cars being hot rod Chevys, uh, my first new car was a brand new Beetle. And because of traveling in Germany with my parents when I was little, I, I kind of knew what Beetles were and I thought they were cool looking. So I financed a brand new Beetle. My payments were $49 a month. What year was this, Sam? 64. <laughs> How much was the car? Seventeen hundred and some dollars. Right. Wow. Yeah, right around seventeen. You can get a gladiator for that right now. Seventeen hundred a month. Yeah. No, ninety-nine bucks a month. They're really cheap. So, so the Beetle. The Beetle. It was the opportunity to have a, a brand new car and uh -huh. that I knew would be reliable and fun to drive and all that. So, when I took it to the VW dealer for the very first service and the first valve adjustment, I met the mechanic, and this guy was German spoke with a heavy accent, and um, we kind of hit it off. And back in those days, there wasn't much speed equipment for VW engines. Today, you can build a VW air-cooled four-cylinder right. to have five gazillion horsepower, but right. not, not then. So one thing led to another, and I found out that it was relatively easy, not 
super easy, but relatively easy to put a Porsche engine into a Beetle. Uh-huh. So with the help of this German mechanic, um, I found an engine, and he helped me rebuild the engine, and he helped me install it in the Beetle, and that was my first Porsche-powered Beetle, and that uh. was my introduction to Porsche. Uh. Prior to then, I didn't... Yeah, I saw them. I knew what they were. They hadn't captivated me the way a Beetle had. Right. Because well, a Beetle's more accessible. And more accessible. Right. Yeah, so... Me too. I knew about Porsches, but I thought, well, you can never have that kind of money. I can, you can never <laughs> yeah. afford that. So I focused on VWs too when I was a kid. I I like the fa- the front face of the oh, Beetle. Yeah. That's what kind of caught my eye. Mm-hmm. It just seemed it seemed modern, even though the fenders were separate from the body of the car, which was kind of old fashioned. The, the no grill look to me just thought that just seemed cool and modern mm-hmm. to me, mm-hmm. and, and intrigued me. So that was the introduction to Porsche, which just started growing exponentially from that point. And then and my then tell first the story of the Fiat you built that Hot Rod magazine wrote about. That was the result of an evolution of Porsche-powered Beetles. Each one was faster and better than the one that preceded it. But ultimately, it got to the point where there's only so much weight that you can take out of a car. Right. And A, still be street legal, and be drivable. And so one day I was at this independent repair shop in Long Beach, and there was a Fiat 600 there when the engine was out of it. Now, I was familiar with Fiat 600s because people in my family in Italy had them, and I I used to ride around in them. I thought they were cool cars. They had no power. And uh, so I'm looking at this Fiat 600 with no engine in it, and I start realizing that dimensionally, it looks like maybe a Porsche could fit in here. <laughs> and then after a little more measuring and a little more talking, I, embar- I found one with a blown engine for $75. And I proceeded to remove the engine. And today, this is sheer heresy. Put the blown engine into a dumpster. Oh, wow. <laughs> what a mistake that was. But at the time, it wasn't a mistake. So... After a little bit of uh, perfecting, got the engine sorted out, resolved some other issues, and then I started street racing with that car. And at the time, the 396 Chevelle was the hot rod car. 1966 396 Chevelle. Yeah, SS. The big rap rap motor, they called it. And um, I started prevailing in late night street racing. One Quick f- sidebar. This is a good Zuckerman area. This is 1964. What was the first Chevelle SS 396? 65, 66, maybe? At least 65. Okay, yeah, 1965. I think, I think late 65, yeah. yeah. 1965. I want you to explain this to me as only you could. It's 1965. World War II is over for 20 years. <laughs> Not that long a time. Right. In today's terms, we're talking about 2000. Right. Okay? The Chevy... Uh, marketing department is looking for initials to put on their high-performance uh, models, and I'm sure they're sitting around a table with some coffee and donuts and thinking, mm-hmm. "Well, gee, how about uh, you know, how about double A? How about LM? How about TT? How about SS? SS? I kind of like the ring of that." Yeah. 
Well, you know, if there were no Jews in the room, they didn't, they didn't think about any Jews in the room. I'm sure they did. you don't have to be Jewish to have noticed the world was at war in the 1940s and 45. You know, but why? Okay. How did that happen? How did that happen? That Should, everybody signed off on that. Yeah, SS. I like SS. Look at what I don't about... See any, I didn't see any negative connotation. Do you, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you look at all the RSs out in that moment, the Ren Sports. RS is not SS. SS has a very specific connotation. Right they, they called it Super Sport. I have to say, as, as sensitive as I am, and I'm always looking for these issues, <laughs> this is one I never saw before, and I'm going to have to now adopt this. I'll credit you two or three times, and then it'll be my observation. <laughs> Don't even bother with the two or three. Okay. Just take it and run. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that, is, that has always mystified me and fascinated me. And uh, I, when I was a kid, I was... I didn't really know that much about World War II. I was young, and, and I love those initials, have my last name having one of the, those initials. And when I saw the SSs at Bass Chevrolet on Merrick Road in Amityville, I loved them. Well, they weren't exactly lightning bolts. I mean, had they been lightning bolt asses, <laughs> it might have been a little more offensive. But yeah, it might have yeah, caught somebody's yeah, eye. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So then, but, wait, but there was a great story with yeah. the Fiat. with the Beating the 396s. Yeah. All that horsepower, but can't get to the ground in those, in those Chevys. And one other component, the Fiat weighed 1,340 pounds. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that was the whole reason why I searched for another way to go after reaching the end of the envelope <laughs> with the Beetle. Because I couldn't get it much below. The Fiat, the Fiat is the way forward. Yeah. You're <laughs> the only person who ever found a way forward oh, in, in yeah, a Fiat really. 600. Oh, right. <clears throat> is this now, what were we in last night in your hangar? We were in a 69 Fiat 850 Coupe, uh, which is way later. That's the 600, later. this is an 850. This was a real motor. Now right, you're talking right. about real horsepower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the 600s, that was a two-cylinder or four-cylinder? Four. Four-cylinder. 500. But still quite modest. The, two, the 500s were twins. Right. Wow. But, uh, okay, so then you start taking this Fiat with the Porsche engine to the drag strip. Lions drag strip in Long Beach. Which, by the way, uh, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, in one scene, Brad Pitt is wearing a T-shirt, Lions Drag Strip. Oh, when I saw that, so that cool. was so cool. Wow. Well, that was the era, you know. Yeah, Because yeah. they closed Lions down in 1972. But <clears throat> what happened uh, one night at Lions, it was the summer of 66, and they were having a big National Hot Rod Association meet, an annual meet. And... On Saturday night, instead of racing cars in their respective classes, they did this thing called ET brackets, where earlier in the afternoon, you would make runs, and they would see what speed, what time you turned, and then they would put you into a bracket that was a half-second bracket, like from 12.50 to 13 seconds, or 13 seconds to 13 and a half seconds, and then... You would race later that evening in that bracket, and if you dialed in, that was the terminology, if you dialed in that afternoon at running a 1280, let's say, in the quarter mile, and the guy next to you was in your same bracket and he ran a 1260, they would give you a two-tenths of a second head start on the Christmas tree, you know, the lights coming down. Really? Yeah, and that's how they would equalize it, and the whole objective was to equalize 
based upon the time you turned, to have <clears throat> heads-up competitive racing. So, of all things, when it came my turn to come up to the line, it was just a coincidence the car that came up next to me was a Dodge Dart from a Dodge dealer called Walker Dodge, and this was a National Hot Rod Association record-holding Dodge. But no big deal because the times were equalized by virtue of... But didn't people sandbag to... to uh... But then you broke out of your bracket. Uh... See, if you went faster than your dial-in time, you broke out. I and you see. lost automatically. Oh. So I dialed in, I think, at a 1283 or something, and this guy was a 1260. I was spotted those couple of tenths of a second on the Christmas tree. We went for it, and I beat him by maybe the tip, 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 tip of my nose. Well, what happened was there were about 10,000 people there that night. It's July 66. It was a hot day, cool night down by the beach. The editor of Hot Rod magazine happened to be in the stands, and he saw the reaction of 10,000 people to this puny little Fiat beating this record-holding Dodge. <clears throat> the next day, when I was there waiting for my class, the, during the day it was not ET brackets, it was your regular class, and I was in a class that was below this Dodge. He found me that day and, and said... Um, Hey, I'd like to do an article on your car. Well, what did I know? You know, no one had ever asked me to do an article on anything. Yeah. So uh, that ultimately led to the car being in Hot Rod Magazine, which, by the way, in that era, <clears throat> Hot Rod Magazine disavowed the existence of foreign cars. Hot Rod uh, Magazine was only about American cars. Right. And so it was a big deal that they did a two-page article on this little Fiat. But the big advantage it had coming off the line from a standing start it rocketed and at the other end is when people were catching me at the other end of because the quarter mile because you had the weight over the drive wheels because of that and because the car was just quick in the lower gears and I ran out of uh, horsepower right. on the top end so now it, another interesting thing about Sam and I and this is you know I know a lot of car <clears throat> people as you do we all do Sam and I share fascination <laughs> with Porsches, VW Bugs, and early Fiats. Now, that is that is a rather dubious distinction, right. which we happen to share. Strange We will trifecta. be talking about 917s, and then we'll start talking about Fiat 850s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And we're just as excited about both of them. Just as. Yes. So that's how we've lasted 25 years. There's a magic in being able to talk about a 917 Lamar winner, one of the most spectacular race cars in the history of cars, and then talk about a lowly Fiat 600 or 850. Yeah. With the same enthusiasm. Yeah. yeah. No, so, I was driving around in a Fiat with this guy yesterday. Wasn't that fun? We, we took the Fiat around the airport last night, and he, you liked it, it's didn't a you? New, it's new. It was just put in the hangar, so it hasn't been sorted yet, but our favorite part is underneath the dash, we pulled a, a knob with a wire connected to nothing, and it fell on the ground. <laughs> we couldn't get any of the keys to work, remember? And I said to Spike, leave that alone. It took me a long time to get it like that. <laughs> yet, when I want the whole wire to come out every time you touch it. And it wouldn't go over 2,500 RPMs, but we blasted around the airport with no gas in the tank. Yeah. And it was great. It yeah. was so much fun. And then it 
he pulled it up to the hangar while we smoked cigars, and it's just looking at us with that face. Yeah. The big orange what a little great light. face. Oh, it's so friendly. It was like an animated movie. Did you see it? There. Did he post a picture of that? I didn't see you? the picture, but we, I was looking at the face yesterday, and the hangar with, with that very flat yeah. sheet metal front, the yes. flatness of the sheet metal with just that little line. There's a little bit of a Volkswagen look in the front of that car. Yes. Again, and, I was drawn then, to this... No radiator look. Right. It just seemed right. modern to me. When I read in VW advertising in the 60s, the idea of we're getting rid of that big, heavy um, drive shaft. And I started to hate the drive shaft. I go, yeah, what is that stupid, heavy that drive shaft. metal drive shaft yeah. slowing my car down? Jerry, well, you what's put wrong the engine in the front and the drive wheels at the back. And we got to have this stupid Rube Goldberg contraption to get the This is moronic. Why is he pouting around the house? It's a girlfriend. It's a drive school? shaft. It's and a drive. drive shaft. And because the VW advertising had humor, I was also very drawn to that. And they would talk about, we don't have radiators. We can't boil over. We can't freeze up. I was so drawn to that. I just love modern thinking, new thinking, smart. It just seems smart. VW seems smart to me. And they, and they were self-effacing. I was actually watching... Uh, a Mad Men scene. Do you remember the scene when they see the VW Lemon ad for the first yes. time? Mm-hmm. And they have this whole discussion about, this is stupid, making fun of your product. These guys don't know what they're doing. And it's and then John Draper says, yeah, but we've been sitting here talking about it for the past 10 minutes. What yeah. does that tell you? Really? Right. What was the name of that ad agency? Those uh, Doyle Dane and Burnback. Yeah, DDB. Bill Burnback, Semitic gentleman from Brooklyn, who convinced VW in the late 50s that they needed humor. Imagine trying to convince Germans in the 50s. <laughs> the most humorless people, people. The most humorless error. Yes. Yeah. Let's make fun of what you do. <laughs> and, I mean, that's a sell job right there. Yeah, How, yeah. However he pulled that off. And I'm fascinated by that story. Uh, and I still think to this day uh, that philosophy and enlightened concept of advertising yeah don't sell the car sell your philosophy sell your attitude sell yourself mm-hmm. uh, whenever mm-hmm. i would see american car ads with all the lease information and all those numbers and you know the uh, just turned me yeah. off you have some of the original artwork too. i do it's brilliant there was a guy who worked at the agency in the 60s that we i bumped into had a little table at the lit show one year and he had all these drawings, and I bought everything he had. Yeah, always obsessed with that advertising. Remember the uh, the one that said, "How does the snowplow driver get to the snowplow?" Yeah, sure. With the yes, that's fantastic. With what? With the, with the VW. VW. With the VW. You never seen yeah. that one? No, I haven't seen that. Oh, one. I've watched every one of those commercials. And you know who picked up on it? Steve Jobs. Steve mm. Jobs saw that, mm. and he picked up on the. How people are drawn to simple white frames, simple Helvetica font lettering. It draws you in to this is refined. This is um, on a different level. Mm -hmm. The Apple company has definitely picked up where VW left off in the 60s. By the 70s, they were lost. The end of the Beatle era in the early 70s, they, they lost their sense of their image, to which they're still searching today right right 
Dieselgate, etc. Uh, yes, yeah. etc. And no more Beatles, no more golfs, <clears throat> just all SUVs. Well, they're about to segue into all electric. They're about to find yes, it of again. course. Of so course. they say. No, they are. I mean, it, they have to. I don't want to deal with the EPA anymore. <laughs> just to get rid of those annoying yeah bureaucrats it, yeah. who catch us <laughs> cheating. You, Paul, I was thinking yeah. of a much fouler term. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so back to the yeah. Let's Sam's talk about cars. Story. I mean, we 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 brought up the nine seventeen. The three well, of us were a, around for the nine seventeen. That story of Sam, Spike, and Jerry and nine seventeen dash o two on Wilshire Boulevard. On Wilshire Boulevard in a parking garage. That's yeah. symbolic motor that was symbolic of Wilshire yes. and yes. Las Cienegas. Yes. Yes. My nibblers. Right. Yes. It was with sitting a, there with in a window f- with a facade yes. glass showroom. So peculiar. But the car was down in the garage. The car it wasn't was even down in the, in the garage, and we have pictures of it. Well, they moved it there. I had seen it when I was driving somewhere, I think, to the airport. I, I was at an intersection, and there it was sitting in a window with some other old cars. And <laughs> what the <laughs> hell They had that? everything in that store. Everything. A Did you ever go in there? Yeah, they had they had a 917, but they had a, the crappy Dodge Viper. They had, uh, yeah. right, they had a little of everything, whatever yeah. would sell. Yeah. But what struck me about it was... Uh, John, my business partner, and I were uh, at the height of this Steve McQueen madness, kind of before it was going on. There had been kind a, of before a decade before <laughs> when there was, and we we just thought he was the coolest, and that was one of his things. and And our mind was kind of blown that this car owned by Steve McQueen. So John and you got on to McQueen. Oh, way on, the, yeah. The, when we first moved to L.A., yeah, yeah. Oh, you knew John from back east? He and I were interns at Letterman together. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's how we know each other. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. That is so cool. And now you have your company. Yeah. It, it all worked out. But he, you know, he was like, let's drive up to Santa Rosa. I go, why? He goes, There's a, you know Steve McQueen? I'm like, yeah, I know Steve McQueen. His house is for sale. I want to go buy it. <laughs> it's next to a <laughs> golf course. And I said, let's go. You know, that was just the type of stuff we did. Oh, wow. You know, never expecting it to get insane. But then this car. Let's take this story from square one. The 917. Which any of you Porsche people out there will are familiar with. This is the star car from the movie Le Mans. Yes. That Steve McQueen bought from Porsche. Directly from Porsche. Directly from Porsche. But let's... And, and the two interesting parts of the story is your awareness of the car and your prescience, if I may. Mm. And if I may. Excellent word. Uh and I'll let my favorite part of the story, but I don't want to jump ahead to that part, is your line, which I always quote. But let's go back to where this began. You were aware of the car from the movie coming out in 1970, and then I got into the movie in the mid-'90s, and we went on a search to find a 70S like McQueen is driving in the beginning of the movie, uh-huh. which led me to buy uh, Henry Meyer's car from uh, Palace Verdes. Right. That was three years before, four years before we bought Henry Meyer's car, 97 versus 01. Right. That's right. So when did you hear that, that, that uh, Bill Noon of Symbolic had gotten a hold of that 917? Well, <clears throat> I knew it from a year before when the right. car went to the RM auction in uh, Monterey. And, and I mentioned it to you at the time. Right. And... You know, it was one of numerous cars that we spoke about, and did it sell? It did. It did. Sell. Imagine one point- that car going across the block at RM in what year? Ninety uh, nine. No, uh, two thousand. I found out about it in ninety nine. The auction was in August of two thousand. 
and Frank Gallagher bought it for one point two. One point two. Frank from New Jersey, the McQueen guy. Yeah. Wow. He had okay. that slate gray. Yes, he did. Yeah. Right. So then from, he got the whole of that car too. Yes. Uh, from Frank. How long did he own the car before he it owned ends it? Up about at, eight months. And, and then Bill Noon called me from Symbolic, and because I had talked to Bill Noon when it was going up at, because see, Symbolic was involved with Dick Atwood in bringing the car to this country in the first place. Tell the fans who Dick Atwood is. And then it went to uh, Kevin Jeanette in Florida to get brought back to the uh, <laughs> Gulf livery. Well, why didn't he want the car? Why did Frank only keep it for eight months? Frank was starting to climb up the ladder age-wise at that point, and I, I don't think he intended to use it. And, you know, then that was a chunk of money. Yeah, yeah. it was and, a big deal. I was, so, I was nervous about buying. I, I, I had, had cold feet about spending that kind of money. Mm-hmm. And he and made some money would. on it. Yeah. Let's not be elitist. Um, <laughs> by the way, Again, just, smirking. just to go back to Dick Atwood, Richard Atwood, Porsche fans, driver of the Salzburg red and white number 23 car. That, number 23. That won Le Mans for the Porsche's very first time, 1970, co-driven by... Hans Hermann. Hans Hermann, right. right look at and by guys. the way, okay. <clears throat> when Dick this. Atwood had that car, the car that is now yours, when he had that car uh, from like 1975 until when he consigned it to RM for the auction. Right. That entire time, the car was in the livery of the Salzburg car. Right. He painted ah. it to look like the car that he wanted. Wow. Okay. And it's then it came story. to the USA. And at the end of this podcast, I am going to put the car on the market. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so prepare your $38 million. <laughs> yes. Anyway, okay. This is So now we go to Bill Noon. Bill Noon calls you. What does he say? He had tried to get us to bid on it the year before. Right. Okay? So he calls me and says, hey, you know, just in case uh, you want another shot at that car, it's uh, available. And so ultimately that is what, and, and he said, by the way, we, because they had a place in La Jolla, mm-hmm. and he said, but we've got it in L.A., so it would be very easy for you guys to go see it. Right. And that's how we wound up going that night. Right. So you called me. I called you. And you said, let's just go look at it. It'll yeah. be cool to look yeah. at it. Because yeah. I had no interest in it. I thought, I am not writing that check. That's insane. I was working you on the side going, you're not going to believe what I just saw on La Cienega. <laughs> Steve McQueen's 917. Did what, you saw it before I did in the showroom? Yeah. No, no. I had uh-huh. seen it driving by. I called you and really? said, that 917 is there. Yeah. You saw it driving on the street? No, I was driving by. Oh, you drove by. I'm like sorry. I, I was at La Cienega and Wilshire's yes, were right, right? Yeah. And I was sitting there, and I looked up, and I went, what the hell is that? When I got home, I looked it up, recalled them, and it was like, this is Steve McQueen's 917. And I immediately called you, and I went, you're not going to believe what's sitting here. I was stunned that this, this incredible thing, and, it, and I think, Sam, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is a time still when people didn't care about race cars, no, right? No, no, no. They had started caring about them, and, and that was the result of vintage racing. Had it not been right. for vintage racing, there would not have been that interest because you couldn't do anything with them right. prior to that. Right, right, right. So vintage racing was already going quite strongly at that point, and, but, but, but value-wise, they were nowhere compared to where they are today. So the three of us end up down there. They right. had moved the car into that little loading dock area. 
Into the parking garage. Into the parking garage. I still have pictures of that day. Yes. I, I'll post some when I that post this podcast. That was so cool podcast. that you brought that camera. Yeah, they're little Instamatic 110s. Yeah. <laughs> the throwaway ones? <laughs> I don't know what it is. No, no. But they're paper cu- paper pictures. Right. Really? Yeah, what, yeah. Was, it wasn't one of those box cameras. I don't know what it was. I don't know right. what I was shooting. That's I just so found funny. these in a suitcase, and I took a little picture with my iPhone so they'd be digital. But right. it. We, I, here's what I remember: just the three of us staring at this thing for about two straight hours, yeah, and our minds being blown about its rarity, but just the way it looked—the dimension of a nine. If you've never seen a nine seventeen in person, we hadn't. The right. shape and size of it, both how big and how small in various aspects, right, will will uh, really uh, surprise you. You can stare at them. I thought, let's just stop there, and we'll, then we'll go do something else. We'll, we'll spend 20 minutes looking at it. And we walked around the car for two hours. Yeah. Couldn't stop observing. Look at it from this angle and this angle. Yeah, it was sacred. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It was we a were cool seeing moment. something from the past that had really touched us. Right. That right. we had access to that we didn't, no one else had. Now, I, I still wasn't hot to, to make a move on it. You were very, you said, I remember you saying to me, why... I, I'm not worthy of this car. I don't. No. This isn't something I should have. This is right. something much bigger for someone else, uh-huh. right? And I said, "Well, who else should have this?" <laughs> I mean, it was you were very humble about it, but the rest of us were seeing this developing collection that you had and thought, well, "Who better to have it?" And well, take Jimmy care Spader, the actor and a close Porsche friend of mine. Always said to me, you know what's wrong with your collection? And I had maybe eight cars at that time. He said, you don't have a race car. You got to have one race car just oh, sitting in amongst yeah. these regular cars to make this group look cool. So he said that. That got in my head. But you really turned the key with one line, which I will relate. Uh, Spike says to me, this is in 2000. He says, you know why I really think you should buy this car? He says, I think, and this is a direct quote, I think Steve McQueen is about to get really hot. <laughs> <laughs> really? You, you don't remember that? Yeah, was your exact words. And I looked what? at you like you had six heads <laughs> and went, what are you talking about? He's dead. <laughs> How is he going to get hot? And you said, I just think he is. And that somehow went into my head. Yeah, the coolness. And that's yeah. really John, because he got me crazy about uh, this stuff. This is the first time learning this. Yeah, that yeah. It was John through you to me. Yeah, that we... And, and, of course, we didn't realize that the idea of maleness, masculinity, and male virtue was about to become obsolete mm-hmm. and bred out of the gene pool. <laughs> and when people look back and go, hey, what happened to men? <laughs> well, let's think back. Who was the last guy that we had that we all thought, hey, there's a real guy. I want to be like that guy. Mm-hmm. And it landed on McQueen. Well, this is where the facial hair comes from. Ah. This is Mario Joyner says, this is the last thing that we have that they can't take. We can grow hair on our faces. Let's see him take that away from us. This is, this is why everyone's so beardy now. Wow. This okay. is going to be great. Can't wait to see this it on TMZ. This Spike's Car Radio ever. It, it, okay, it is. so, but Spike was right. He had no idea, of course. You had no concept of how big McQueen was going to get. 
He I became, had an idea of how my enthusiasm with my friends, that's all I was communicating. I, I wasn't speaking to a larger market, but I was noticing something happening in my little group of guys. Wow. That we were nuts about this stuff. Right. Anything this guy did, his houses, his places, his sunglasses, we yeah. were all looking at it. The watches, Everything all of it. Everything he did. Podcast One has some exciting news. It's official. Our shows are now available on Spotify. And it's free. We want to make it super easy for you and your friends to listen to our podcasts. And joining Spotify allows us to be in even more places for fans to find us. If you're already listening to music on Spotify, you can now listen to our podcasts in the same place. If you're not on Spotify yet, all you have to do is download the free app. That's right. No credit card necessary. And simply search for our shows to start listening. You're listening to Spike's Car Radio. Please talk about the motorcycle we bumped into yesterday. Yeah, that's, you know. That was unreal. The genius of Santa Monica Airport is you're walking by hangars, and then there's suddenly these businesses sprout up, and we're, we're walking from uh, Jerry's main hangar to the porn hangar, as we like to call it, with cigars, and there's a guy with about 300 motorcycles yeah. in a gigantic that you've airplane never seen? hangar that we've never seen before. You've never seen this? No, bunch no of stuff. he Have doesn't know. It? In your row? Yeah. Yeah, no, no yeah. this guy just opened up. Yeah, he just opened He's up. He's got running a business so, a, for some kind of auction business. One right? guy, one guy, just cleaning one motorcycle. By three hundred of them Packed, jammed in there. Like handlebar to handlebar, you can't even move. I don't remember the name of the business. We said, "What are you doing?" He goes, "We're we're like the bring a trailer for motorcycles. We're starting an auction business for motorcycles." And and we walk in, and here are all of these beautiful vintage bikes, vintage dirt bikes, uh, Vic Brandstetter. Is part of uh, part of this deal. Has been down the airport Everything. for a long time. Everything exotic, Arch. Italian stuff, American stuff. Right. We saw the Keanu Reeves bike. There was uh, yeah. a, a, an Arch one or saw a Suzuki uh, four hundred dirt bike, the yellow and black tank from the seventies, the Kenny Roberts era, it, it, and, and Spike jeweler's eye that he has. <laughs> Spots in this row. I mean, jammed in with so much stuff. <laughs> the Husqvarna dirt bikes, but and, not just any Husqvarna. But there were two, and then there's one that has the yellow. You asked him. I think you had any Huskies. I think you <laughs> asked the guy. Yeah, <laughs> and he said I do. And he, it's this bike that you, if you remember Steve McQueen on the cover of Sports Illustrated, doing the jump without his shirt on. You and remember Gino's. that picture? Famous. Famous. Over it's the that bike. Fence. It's that exact bike. <laughs> well, we got to buy that bike. <laughs> it's that terror shirt. It's so, it's no, it's I don't think that's the same model. Kind. But, but it's the exact re- model. I could reenact escape. that photo with my beer gut and my man boobs doing a jump on no, that we'll bike. No, we'll get you one of those T-shirts that has abs. You put that on. <laughs> wasn't that movie The Great Escape? No. Yeah. Well, there was, he was doing a jump he wasn't in, in The, the Great Escape. No. He wasn't on a Husky. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, but, he was on some World War II German bike or something. who was the stuntman? Uh, Bud, uh, Eakins. Bud Eakins. Yeah, yeah. Who's uh, golf who's stuntman? Uh, racing suit I own. But we're going to buy that bike, right? We're going to buy that bike. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You picked one out. I picked you. You, go, you go nuts. You said it like motorcycles are like guitars or anything. If you start buying them, you're never going to stop. You can't stop. No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I really – I don't go near uh, motorcycle magazines or motorcycle stores. To me, it's like strip, strip clubs. and like, I, why, why, I don't want to look at this stuff. I can't – I don't want to open this door. 
this this I, this door is vault. I'm I'm in a vault. Now. Sam, you you always know the answers to all questions, right? So here's always, <laughs> <laughs> but watch, he's gonna know. You know what I didn't like? My first motorcycle was a Hodaka Combat Wombat, right? And it was a two stroke, and I was 12 years old, and I did, I never liked pouring oil in a gas tank. It never made sense oh, to me. Oh, I love it. And if I get this Husky. The Husqvarna, it's a two-stroke, right? And I'm going to have to do that. It might right. have an automatic oiling system. <clears throat> Some of those, they started to get those in the 70s. It? It's, it's got to be 60s. Yeah, no, it's I think that 70s. didn't start till the 70s, automatic oiling. But what do I, but but do I mix the oil and the yeah, gas? It's like a man it does up? it. Like a no, man. The easiest way to do it is pre-mix it in a can. Uh-huh, you have right. different gradients, levels on the can. Yes. So you put the gasoline up to one level. And then add the oil to the next level that's indicated, and then shake it up and pour like it in the bike. Like a protein shake, and that's it. Yeah, that's wow. the way to do like it. A protein bike. shake. <laughs> Are we buying that bike? Uh, you want it? You want in? Let's get it. I you want to plan Z it? it? I mean, when you and he pulls up the McQueen shot from Sports Illustrated, <laughs> you're done. And we're looking at the forks. It's the same exact bike, and you lose it, right? Yeah. You want that? It's, you you want me on that wall? <laughs> <laughs> it has a nice dent in the in the gas tank. Oh, it does. It's good. Yeah, oh, it's gonna be good. good. Question. Now, now, at some point though, I'm, now I'm confused. Bike, though. I thought the 917 Chad McQueen drove that for you. Why is Chad? Well, that's Mc- another okay, chapter. That's another different. chapter of this that's in the story. Okay, okay, let's okay, go back. Hey, You're right. Sorry. Though. We should get back yes. on, on track yeah. here with the 917. Where did we leave off? Because we still haven't bought it yet. No, no, and the it hasn't step, gone to Willow. Hmm. Correct. The next step was when we rendezvoused at Willow. Symbolic said, come out to the track. We're going to have a 512 Ferrari out there. We'll bring right. the 917 out. Exactly. Right. You and uh, Jerry, and yeah. you were kind enough to bring me along. You, you, and we drove up with the Gunas, right? I think so. That was, an, <laughs> that was a crazy drive. I don't think he was there. But you, I, here's what I remember. You were in... I was in the 73 RS that all four of us have owned. Oh, this is crazy. Yeah, right? That's another great yeah. story. You were in some sort of turbo or something. Uh, the, uh, you were in the blue turbo S. The blue turbo the S. The turbo oh. S. <laughs> and the grimace because he sold the car. But here, do you remember the moment that I remember? We were coming down a hill. Yes. At a high rate of speed. Yes, very high rate <laughs> of speed. There's no one on the highway, so we goosed it a little over. No, I, would, I was in Zuckerman's GT2. I think so. Oh, I was in the Adriatic blue GT- 914, 1970 no. color GT yes. 996 GT2, the first GT2 that they made. Oh, you know, that's no. what I drove up. What there. year would that be? And you were in the orange. No, Jerry, that's not possible because the GT2 didn't was an 02 model. It came out at the end of 01. We did this in April of 01. But it was a blue I'm car. I'm positive you had your turquoise blue. Yeah. 97 oh, okay, right. We were getting on it. another trip, another venture. And at the height of getting on it. Yes. We went right through a radar trap. Yeah. A laser. and the, But the police officer was looking down. <laughs> and when we got to the track, we were like, what do we have to do to get a speeding ticket? Yeah. Oh. Because we just went, boom, just yeah. right by. Boy, that was really fun. It was so fun. And the cop just looked up and said, nah, there's no way somebody would do that right in my face. Bright so I must, have, I must not be seeing it. <laughs> Bright blue, over 100. The Adriatic so Blue GT2, the reason you're thinking of that is because we did have that at Willow later on. Uh, okay. All and, right. So yeah. back. let's cut back to the car. Willow Springs. Chad McQueen. 
kindly shows up, son of Steve McQueen, because he hasn't seen the car in some years, right, I, exactly. I imagine. And he had ridden in it on his dad's lap right. when he was a little kid. Right. And Sabalik knows I'm, we want to put on a show for these guys. Right. A little mini Le Mans. Trying to close me. To and try to close That's what it was. Right. Yeah, sure. Yes. And I remember we... At first, which is nothing I love better, by the way, yes, than being when closed. a salesman puts his eyes on me and says, I'm going to close you. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. do it, baby. <laughs> right. I love getting sold. It's another reason I love Sam is he's a fantastic he salesman. Sell. Yes. And he takes his time. Mm-hmm. When he's selling you a car, he tells you a story like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> yes. It's great. And it, he's it always a great talker. How it reminds him of some evening in 1973 <laughs> on the Italian Riviera. Yes, I was driving from Valencia <laughs> right. with a this glass all. of sangria yeah. in my hand, and yes. I shifted from third to fourth. Yes. <laughs> well, I've got a lot of those stories. <laughs> lots of them, lots of them. Yeah. Nothing but also, will sell me on a car as yes. when Sam says, I drove one of those from Dusseldorf to uh, Calabrese <laughs> <laughs> on a midnight bonsai run. Yeah. How about when you look at the carbon on the exhaust <laughs> in this spot right here, Spike? That came right from the factory. It has not been touched. Those are the details. Oh, I Sam, like. ten million, that, that's ten more podcasts of yes. Sam's stories. <laughs> that All right, but back into the 917, because the first yeah. thing we saw was the, the Ferrari 512 coming around that last right, turn on Willow. Right, yeah. An image that, again, with the, the Internet's not really there doing this That's stuff. That's right. Yet. So we hadn't heard these cars or really seen right, them do that. Right. At least Jerry and I, right? Yeah. And we went, oh, my God. The <laughs> sound of a Ferrari 512. Yeah. Yeah. And then Who was driving the cars? Was well, it- Chad drove the 917. I'm not sure who drove the uh, Ferrari. Right. The Ferrari. 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 We were waiting for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then Lake so, Como comes out. So they pull out the 917. Yeah. Some pleasantries with Chad. He gets into the 917 okay. and goes out for so, his first lap. So we're standing there. Me, Spike, Sam, we're watching the 917. Turn one. Wow, that sounds cool. Turn two. That sounds cool. Turn three. Hey, I think I just saw the front wheel pass <laughs> pass on Chad's right. Hmm, that's odd. Don't you need four wheels? <laughs> and we see this tire bouncing through the infield, and Chad somehow still driving. I'm going, wow, that's a neat trick. <laughs> what a car this must be. Yeah. It, it uses wheels occasionally. Do you remember what you said to me? No. Well, that's the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Car. Yeah, and, sure. then the, and then the masking tape came out. Remember that? Well, we drove out to the corner. We drove out oh, to the turn. Oh, we did. And while you were listening to everybody talk about what had happened, they hadn't put the big nut tightened, I was quietly collecting pieces of Steve McQueen's 917, the gulf blue flex and orange flex, which were on the ground and putting them in my pocket. I have those somewhere. I have really? those pieces. Yeah, it was Steve McQueen's 917 Do you pieces. know what those are worth? <laughs> what are they worth? Something. Are you Something, kidding? Right? Seriously. Little trinkets, little... Many uh, thousands, wouldn't you say, Paul? Absolutely. Many thousands. I'll broker the deal right yeah. now. <laughs> I put them in a little baggie yeah. and show like them my relics. friends. Do you know what you're looking at right here? Chicklets? Nope. 
Oh, so boy. what happens after that? They did put the wheel back on. They did drive the car. <laughs> we did not make a deal that day. No, we didn't, but we did soon no. after. Yeah, soon after. Mm. Well, we did some negotiating Yeah, because they wanted X amount, and we offered X amount, and we uh, did our usual don't even little tap dance. So how long after that, then, did you guys buy the car? Less than a week. Right. I had went, gone back to New York, and I was shooting a pilot with Barry Martyr in New Jersey, Cranford, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> when he told me about that town, I said, we got to shoot it there. That's a funny name for a town. Yeah. <laughs> what, what the, so, but where you don't want the car, you say that's the end of that. At what moment did you change your mind and say, I want to buy this car? And, I, and it's time. I, I don't know. I, I told you, it, it was, Sam's the greatest car salesman <laughs> in the world, but it was really your line. Right. Steve McQueen's about to get hot. I believed you. I thought, I don't know why. I think he's right. And I think this car has value. And Jimmy Spader's line is, you need a race car. And I remember dragging uh, Jimmy to the hangar and, and saying, and, and pulling the cover off of the car and showing him, look, I got a race car. That's all it was to me. It's a race car. You know, it looks cool. And never thinking for a second that, I had made the greatest move of my life, car collecting move of my life. Without right? a doubt. Without a doubt. The little seat, the little back area where you put the suitcases. There were so many. Oh funny. yeah, yeah. The oh, camera yeah. mounts were on it, right? Camera mounts still are still on so, it. So Sam, here's a question for you now. <clears throat> how do you, uh, now that it's smashed a little bit, how do you go about vetting that car for authenticity? Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, how do totally. you look it over? What are you looking for? Well, well as far as <laughs> Well, I, I think the listeners really want to know. I mean, there's, there aren't many of these cars out there, right? Exactly. It's that car. No, I know. But, I, but when he inspects the car, what does he look at? And the oh, 917 okay. is the question. All right. Okay. In the case of the 917, uh, had it not been for how much I'd hung around racetracks all my life and had seen these kinds of cars, even though I had not seen any 917s, well... I had seen 917s, but not able to stick my head inside and all that. But I had was quite familiar with other Porsche race cars of the era, and I knew how the frames looked, and I knew how the Vintags looked, how they were attached, many other things about the frame. So, And then the beauty of this particular car is that it was unrestored. Yeah. So it's not like it was a car that was taken down right. to as many pieces as it could break down into and refinished to be perfect, it was still, it had original dirt on it, as yes. I like to call it. Ah, uh, the original dirt. Yeah. I yeah. love original dirt. So, original dirt. It so, also had the camera mount in the front. They're in the yeah, front. Yeah, in the front. In, Aside from paperwork all over the place from solar racing. Well, and, that was critical. All the documentation, the provenance, having known where it was every step of the way. Right. And ironically, when Steve McQueen sold the car, he sold it to two gentlemen who had a small race team in Germany called Auto Usdau, U-S-D-A-U. Well, none other than Reinhold Joost uh-huh. and Willi Kausen. And so this is a little aside, but in my office in Signal Hill, I have various old Porsche racing posters, and one of them is of the Nürburgring 1971, and the face of the poster is a certain 90803, in Martini and Rossi livery, and I happen to know 
a lot about that car for other reasons we whatever. So um, I'm looking, okay, it won the race, and then there was another 90803 that finished second, and then an, an Alfa Romeo 33.3 that finished third. And to make a long story short, there was a 917 that finished fifth or sixth overall, but it won its class. It's your car. Right. Your 917 wow. in the hands of Reinhold Yost was defeated by the 90803 that won the race, which ultimately <laughs> became the property of Reinhold Yost. Right. So, anyway, um, I was the, the provenance of this car, having known every single owner. McQueen bought it himself from Porsche Solar Productions. By the way, Solar Productions, the word solar was from the name of some street he used to live on. Oh, really? Yeah, I never knew that. Mount until Olympus? I was reading something recently. Where, in, in the Hall? valley. In the I think valley? in the valley, yeah. I think. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, when he first met Neely, uh, his that wife, yeah, the mother of Chad. Adam, I think. Here's a Steve McQueen item I came across the other day. Solar Productions was based, guess where? Same studio where I did my show. 4024 Radford. Oh. In, in uh, um, Studio City. Studio City. Yeah. I mean... How about that? It was in, it was in the scriptures that you were going to buy this car. Yeah. You yeah. know who else was there? Gilligan's Island. That's right. <laughs> oh, Gilligan. The lagoon was there when you yeah. were still doing your show. Did you know that? Yes. I know you guys used to go down there. Well, when you hired me the fir- on my first day, I went down there. I went down to see this sacred place. The lagoon. Yeah. Not the Seinfeld bungalow. Yeah. Gilligan's Island's lagoon <laughs> that Larry Sanders was then using as their... Remember in one of the episodes, he escaped to Montana to live in a... Uh, in a house in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> no. That's what it turned into oh, after that. And then they paved it and we shot down Well, there. I have to admit, I never visited it. Yeah. One, I never saw it. And I love Gilligan's Island. <laughs> but back to the 917. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's what the listeners are saying in the car. <laughs> Enough about Gilligan. Talk about that 917. When was your first drive? That's a good question. Probably at Willow, the time that you had the Adriatic Blue GT2 there. Right. That could be another. And I got in that car, and to this day, you get Mm. in that car. There are two cars in my life that I have been in. One is that car, and the other is uh, uh, Ralph Lauren's um, um, GTO. GTO. Those are the only two cars I have. Those are the two cars I have been in, both 12s. That you get in them and you do feel that you are a Greek god streaking across the sky on, on the wings of Apollo. You feel that you have lassoed the sun and you are being swept through the universe by some extraterrestrial force. <laughs> by the way, did you see the video last night of the, um, the UFO, the, the Southern California? It was a great video. It was in the LA Times. I didn't. Oh, fantastic video. Really looks cool. Big, long stick of light, just something. That's not a plane. And, like, everybody calling the police and Bill everybody. Bill was just telling me SpaceX has been launching satellites, and there are more launching tonight. Well, maybe that's who it was. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I hate people to think you believe in aliens. When here. you, uh, I, I was explaining to somebody the other day what it's like to get in a 917 and to drive it. Of course, the, uh, the most amazing thing about it, being a Porsche, you can drive it. You know, I'm just a regular guy. I'm not a race car driver. I'm mm-hmm. just a guy who likes to drive cars. I got in it, turn the key, it starts, you put it in first, you let up the clutch, and off you go. 
and next thing you know, you're flying around a racetrack. The view out the, oh. the windshield, the sound behind your head, the colors. Uh, those two cars are the greatest automotive experiences I've ever had. Honorable mention, the 908 three Targa Florio winner, which I think is the greatest uh, handling car I've ever driven, uh, if you're into your uh, Porsche prototype race cars. Sam, the little seat next to it that doesn't have the seatbelt in it, right, the passenger seat, that was just there to qualify for racing? R- that, the FIA regulations <clears throat> and mandated the seat. They, they mandated so many. Basically, these were ostensibly road cars, they had to meet certain criteria. That Headlights, turn signals, right? Trunk, and trunk. The yeah. Ni- yeah, the nine seventeen. And this trunk. car has Spare. a title right now, right? You could the nine seventeen. Yeah, you could make it, it speed doesn't, legal. It doesn't. We could probably get one legally because it has directionals and headlights. Oh, and yeah. Well, it does have those kinds. Of, you know, I'm not sure if it has directionals. But it wouldn't be difficult to add them. But <laughs> but it does have road equipment. It does have uh-huh. normal road equipment. And from the standpoint of uh, the motor vehicle code, uh, it would take very little for the car to comply. Can you uh, put into um, the, our, our show today the sound of a 917 starting up and revving? Yeah, we can, can do it right now at this moment. Let's do it. So you this is hear- what it sounds like, kids, when you start up a 917. that now let's hear one at speed because that's really yeah where you hear it so try and imagine you're in this vehicle it's 1970 you've got a 5.4 liter what's the horsepower 450 the, 580. Well, the 5.4 was 580. Okay, 580 horsepower. It's night. You're on a public road in France, which is part of the Le Mans course, as they lay it out. You're on a public road at night in the rain. Five miles long. The Molson right. was five miles long. Five then. miles long. You're doing 240 miles an hour with your feet in front of the axle of the car. <laughs> in front. <laughs> in the rain sometimes. In, in the, the rain, rain at night. At night. Yeah. <laughs> Talk and about you, manliness. You, yeah. You noticed it right away. I remember you getting in the car when you took it out the first time. When that door closes. Yeah. You know, the open cockpit versus the closed cockpit. Yes. There is a moment of seriousness. Yeah. There's a there's a what we call a sack moment. <laughs> <laughs> a squinchy. Yeah. It's a sack squinch. <laughs> Where you feel like your tailor has just made an error on your suit. <laughs> because somebody You got to let that out a little, Sal. <laughs> You know, somebody said somewhere during that day or one of the days it's been at the track, you know, they had a reputation for just exploding for no reason. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> they just explode for no reason? Yeah, you know, they just might. Or if you downshift the wrong way, it explodes. So, um, that's just and one we of own the, the car to, to this day, yeah. and we're going to display it at Pebble Beach <clears throat> this August. I was going to bring that There's up. It's going to be a 917 celebration. At, uh, the, at, at Monterey, the famous uh, Pebble Beach Concours, and they're bringing 
eight significant it 917s. It looks like it's going to be eight. Um, Miles Collier's car is going to be one of them. Wow, the I love winner. that car. And uh, two from the Porsche factory. Wow. I'm sure 01 will be there. Oh, yeah. One of them is 01. Yeah. And may I suggest in real time that we do a 917 panel this year at Pebble? Sure. Isn't that the idea? Well, sure. So why don't we have a panel on the 917? We'll have Jerry. We'll have Sam. We'll have Miles. Well, the guys who know these cars, because look, we just took up forty-five minutes talking about one car. And I wonder if they're going to Hurley drive one of those. Huh? Hurley well, Haywood drove a 917. Highly likely, I would think. Yeah, get Dick Atwood. Yeah. All right, we're and doing. Watch him and cry plus, when plus, we tell him what the car's worth now <laughs> and what he sold it. Tell car. him right on the panel and hand <laughs> him a gun. Here, it's worth X amount. Here's the gun. Blow your brains okay. out. Now, now here's a good reason. <laughs> Splat. Oh. Everyone clapped. Oh. <laughs> Laughter and applause. Okay. The standing ovation. Do it again. <laughs> they would pass the gun around because as car guys, we've all made this mistake. Yeah. We've all let a Have great Bill car Bill Noon pass. up there. Everybody that owned this car, passed the gun around. Clam. Clam. Now, cheering, clapping. I need another cup of coffee. This is great. Now, th- this could have been... Uh, 917 a, death panel. This could have been a good reason to uh, have a divorce. When yeah. Brian Redman bought the car from the uh, company that put a lien on the car after Alta Ustau, Yost, and uh, Willy Cowson had it, uh, it went somewhere and they wound up putting a lien on the car, and that's how Yost lost the car. Uh-huh. Brian Redman bought it, and Brian Redman's wife got totally upset with Brian because he paid like $15,000 for the car. Oh, wow. Yeah, this was in 1975. And then she was sort of okay with it when he flipped it to Dick Atwood and made a couple grand on it. He told me he sold it to buy a, ho- a bigger house. Right, exactly. They had f- saw a house that they wanted to buy, they needed some cash, and they flipped it. <laughs> Imagine the house Laughter you from Jerry. <laughs> I win. <laughs> King bonbons. bonbons and cigars for everyone. <clears throat> wow. Wow. Well, this is a great show. Are you ending it? You should end it now. Don't get we this. Went, we went long. We can great. do it. Uh, we can do it again. Anytime, because we there's so many cars that you guys have bought together. We didn't even touch on the the Tangerine and we have, we have RS to do that the we've all owned together. Oh, the Tangerine RS that we all But Sam, owned. while you're here, just for just indulge me for five minutes, because there, there are a lot of listeners out there that really don't know how to buy a 911 or a 356. Stop making fun of me. <laughs> and I just want to give them just one because I know they're. That's one of the reasons they're listening to this episode. Just can you just give them some basic tips if they're not around a person like you on how to to vet an early nine eleven a three fifty six? What do you look for? What do you not look for? Before you even look at the car, I would ask to see as much documentation that they have relative to the car, whether it's work orders, invoices, or chain of ownership, past owners, because if you Approach the car already with that background. You can already start understanding and seeing things instead of going cold turkey up to the car. And You've said that to me on the phone before. You, I've sent you a car and you go, let me see if I can eliminate it That's what I always by try to looking do. at the ad and right. looking at the paperwork. I like to Great eliminate tip. it without going to look at it. Right. right. Great right. tip. And then Great if, tip. I, if I can't, then I'm forced to go look at it. Right. Um, and then, I mean, you, you have to have some 
knowledge about cars in general in order to be able to draw any conclusions. If you don't know anything about cars, you can be seduced by any car. And if you don't know a lot mechanically, then you pretty much have to hire somebody who does. And but you know, but you look that's for not matching, easy to do either. You look for matching numbers. Yes, but when you're looking at the car like that, you're not going to have that documentation in right, front of you necessarily. Right. But the main thing is use common sense. Open up everything that'll open. Lift up floor mats. You'd be amazed what you find under right. floor mats at times. Mice and, feces. Yeah, and in if we're talking about a Porsche 911. <laughs> Uh, lift up the uh, all the carpeting in the front trunk, and if it's a 911 up to and including 1989, open the smuggler's box, which I'm sure that when U.S. Customs, a few years before that, discovered that that door opened inside the yes. trunk and there was this huge cavity, they probably thought, I wonder how much stuff got by us prior to that. <laughs> right, yeah. So, I mean, just use common sense. Look everywhere you can. Look for, if you see an area that's got a patina, like a layer of dirt that looks normal for usage, and now you've got an area that looks brand new. Something's not right. Uh, same thing in the engine compartment. If the engine is perfectly clean and the rest of the car looks like it's got miles on it, then somebody cleaned it to hide things. Common sense is just a great starting point. There it is. And mm. but but at the end of that point, you've got to get someone who's mark specific, who then can see things that are another layer or two down. Right. Right. Are you still buying cars for people? If someone wants to vet a serious race car or some big money yeah, a car, little bit. you get you in know, touch with Sam Caviglio. You know, I'm, I've got a, a, a good thing going with uh, one particular guy, and he keeps me <laughs> pretty busy. I no sooner finish one deal than I'm off on another one. <laughs> And, I mean, like the Fiat 850. You'd be surprised. You know what? Well, we, we saw four new cars <laughs> when we were down there Some the other day. Some of these little cars, believe it or not, are more work than the big ones. They're harder to find. They're harder to find. Yeah. And then sometimes, you know, you've got to use a, a howitzer to pry them loose from the people who own them. We, we're specializing in what we call releasing the grip. Yeah. A hammering. Cat, what do you I, hammer with? Bags of money. Uh, cash <laughs> Right. There money are many articles of persuasion. <laughs> that's funny. That's just one more weapon in our arsenal. Yeah. But so many cars come to you guys. I mean, I remember on the show, that's what was. I was, I was looking at crumbs that dripped off your plate, you two. You'd be like, oh, there's this 73 911T from Tennessee with 12,000 original miles. It's white and black. I don't like white. You should buy this. Oh yes, Sam yes. found it. You know what? Uh, that that incredible car, right? You scraps, know, scraps. Yes. Yes. This, that was a scrap. Yeah. Well, car. when you cut a piece of cake, there's always crumbs. <laughs> thinner, thinner. Just a little bit. Anyway, Sam, long overdue. Thank you for joining us today. My Jerry, pleasure. Of course, you're the most requested guest uh, to return host. Please. Really, Earth, Wind, and Thank Fire. You. Yep. We have Earth, oh, yeah, Earth, we, Wind, and Fire. We have Earth, Wind, and Farah, but it really all begins <laughs> with you here in Zuckerman and here at Malibu Kitchen. Um, that's it. And and you know what? We'll all be up in Monterey, and we're going to do a 917 panel, so you can catch up with us there and hear some more about these cars because these guys, you know, have a unique experience with them. And as you've just heard, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. It's A big, big part of this game or this hobby is the stories, the people, and the journey of finding and acquiring these things. We yeah. love the cars, but we also love everything around the 
pursuits, the analysis, the conversation. It's, uh, as I said in the beginning about the barbell, it's a world of madness, and I think we'd all be a little lost without it. All right, let's have some breakfast. All right. All right, see you next week, guys. Thanks for listening to Spike's Car Radio. Download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.